The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship the Lord our God. The Lord is near to him, uh, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. Amen. So our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 8, verse 13. The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Lift up your hearts. Let us pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are truly Lord over all hosts. The heavens declare your glory. All creation groans in expectation for you to act. We are here to worship you, to hallow your name with our prayers, songs, declaration of your word and celebrating our unity in your son Jesus Christ. So accept our awe, accept and bless our worship, that it may shine like a light in a dark place to bring more glory to your name. For we ask it in Jesus' name, and amen. Uh, sticking in Proverbs, uh, I've chosen a passage from chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. The word of the Lord. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, my law as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin, that, you may keep, that they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with, his, with her words. In this short section, we see a father giving an exhortation to his son with eight commands that are kind of combined in four couplets with the objective of keeping his son out of immorality. Now, if you're a parent, you wouldn't be surprised about the repetitiveness of instructing sons, or perhaps teenagers, as their skulls can be pretty thick. Well, the first couplet is, keep my word and keep my commands. And the second is to treasure these commands as the apple of your eye. The third couplet tells the son's son to bind them on his fingers and to write them on the tablet of his heart. And the fourth encourages him to consider wisdom as a sister as the next of kin. Now, clearly keeping the commands of your parents, or ultimately God, given that your parents are his representatives, is the pathway to life and blessing. But commands without some connection with application can lead the command out of reach, or maybe ineffective. So let's look at the next three couplets. Notice how the first is about attitude. If you don't begin with the belief that your parents' advice and rules are valuable, you are revealing, as Sean spoke on the last exhortation, that you're acting wickedly and not righteously or wisely. You're not receiving instruction. The wise man receives instruction, he taught last week. You can measure your application here by how readily and thankfully you receive your parents' instructions, especially when you don't like the answer. The next couplet is geared toward practical application. Things bound in your hands or on your heart are in clear view. They are at hand. That's why in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, uh, hide God's word in your heart so that you may not sin against me. So we want to memorize these instructions, internalize them. And the final couplet combines all these things. Your sister, your next of kin is there for you. You want to seek and treasure her wisdom. Practically, a woman knows a woman like a man, recognizes and knows the thoughts and motives of a man. In the area of seduction and flattery, your sisters, including your mom, will be able to quickly identify and warn of the wrong kind of interest on the part of another woman. So put these tools into practice. Isaiah 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they shall be as wool. Dear Father in heaven, as parents, we confess that we have not taken seriously our responsibility for the spiritual health of our sons and daughters, providing them the protection and instructions they need in this wicked and crooked generation. As young men, we have not hidden your word in our hearts or treasured our parents' or sisters' wisdom for protection from sexual sin. As young ladies, we have not considered our role in flattering or in consideration in tempting our brothers instead of encouraging and warning them. So hear us now as we confess these and our individual sins and Selah. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 57, 19. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. We have come into God's presence with nothing to advance a claim of righteousness except our connection with Jesus, our Savior, who forgives our sins and gives us his righteousness. We have confessed our sins and thank God for his loving gift of forgiveness. And so it's with great joy that I declare to you that by the blood of Jesus, your sins are forgiven in Christ. So we'll be working for, through all of John chapter 11, but I'll be beginning reading in John 11, verses 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that tells of your great love for your people, for this family, for Lazarus, for Martha, for Mary. We also thank you for your word who became flesh and dwelt among a people full of longing, of brokenness, of sin, of death. Father, we thank you that your word in Jesus has revealed your glory, and that this glory is full of grace and truth. Father, we ask that your spirit would be given to us now that we may rightly understand your word that we would be a people who are eager, longing to see your glory. We pray this in the name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please be seated.
So it can be uh, helpful to get perspective on problems. Put your problems in perspective. Uh, Christine Lamaro is the beloved secretary at Christ Church, and she has this saying that she likes to pull out when something goes wrong at the office. Well, at least nobody died. Right? Well, nobody, at least nobody died. So if we run out of bulletins a Sunday morning because we didn't print enough, she says, well, at least no one died. She consoled me a couple years ago when, out back in the days when I was the Grace Agenda Conference coordinator, I scheduled the Grace Agenda Conference during the WSU Moms Weekend uh, over in Pullman, so that way there was not a single hotel room in all of Moscow, Pullman, except for like the Roach Coach Motel. And she consoled me, well, at least nobody died, right? even though I still wept a little bit. Right? When her husband, Mark, had a motorcycle accident, broke his collarbone, and there's medical bills and time off work, I think she did manage to get out. Well, at least nobody died. Right? And that, that's helpful to have that perspective, even bringing a little levity to a, a challenging situation. But what happens, but what happens when it is the worst? What happens when somebody does die? What happens when it is someone that you love dearly? Right? It's not just a death out there, but it is a death close to home. Death and love. Right? In our passage, in John chapter 11, these realities of love and death are woven into this story. Jesus has a deep love for Lazarus and for his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they, and they love Jesus. But Lazarus dies. Lazarus dies. And you know what? Jesus even intends for Lazarus to die. So how do these two realities, the love of Jesus and the death of Lazarus, hold together? They only hold together because the love and death both lead to the glory of God. If you want want a, a a title for the sermon, that's it. It's love, death, and the glory of God. And we'll see That the only way for all of these to be held together is through believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the resurrection and the life. And as Jesus interacts with, uh, with, with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, even in that difficulty, we're going to see that he gives truth to answer doubts. He gives truth to answer doubts and he gives grace to comfort despair. So love, death, and the glory of God. And as a brief side note, uh, you may know that this is a, a wonderful story to me, to our family. Love it so much so that we have named our son Lazarus. Um, so you'll forgive me if Lazarus gets shortened to his nickname Laz in this story. And I'll try to limit the, uh, the Lazmans or the Lazardazzers to a minimum. So, all right, 
We are in John chapter 11. If you have your Bible, your phone, pull it out. John chapter 11. We see that in these first six verses, John introduces the family. There is Lazarus, and he has two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus really wants to show that Jesus loves this family. Jesus loves them. But there's a problem in verse 1. Lazarus is sick. He is dying. So what do the sisters do? Verse 3, they send for help. They send a message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Notice how the sisters talk about him. Lord, remember the one you love, this man is ill. Right? It's not merely that, hey, we as the sisters, we love this guy. We love our brother. Or that Lazarus loves Jesus. But they are appealing to Jesus' love for Lazarus. And they don't beg. They just simply state the situation. This man whom you love is ill, and they trust that the Lord would do, would know what to do. Just think about how many of us have done the same thing, right? We've gotten that phone call, or we are in the hospital room, or we are in the months of treatment. Someone is ill. What do we do? We send for help. We send to help to the Lord on behalf of our mom, our friend, our child, right? One whom you love, Jesus, is sick, has cancer, has seizures. And when Jesus hears the message, he explains what's going to happen. He says that this illness does not lead to death. It does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that way that Son of God may be glorified through it. What's happening to Lazarus right now? Jesus says it's not about sickness. It's not about death. It is about glory. And this must have given hope for the messengers, right? They go back and they tell the sisters it's not about death. But also it gives us a, a a jab, right? A jab in our stomach. Because we do know what's going to happen, right? Lazarus is going to die. Verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Jesus wants to stress that Jesus' action of staying, of waiting, even after he hears the message, is motivated by love. He's setting this up. Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Martha. He loved Mary. Therefore, what does he do? He delays. He waits two days. And the gut-wrenching question is, how is this love, right? How is this love, right? When you hear there's the trauma on the, uh, the, on the bike jump, right? And there's gravelly gravel in the knees, right? What is your reaction? 
right? You go out and you help, you console, you clean up, right? Try to stop things hurting. Right? That is what it seems like a reaction of love does. Right? That's the kind of love that's easy for us to understand. And yet, it says that Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He loves them, therefore he delays even while Lazarus is dying. And it says, then after two days, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Right. Now it's time. We've waited long enough. Let's go back to Judea. But the disciples, who are ever the voice of self-preservation, remind him that the last time Jesus was down there, the Jews tried to stone him. Not a good idea to go back right now. But Jesus explains to them that it's not his time to suffer and die. Right? It's still the daylight. It's not time for me to suffer. But then Lazarus, uh, but then he says, Lazarus, our friend, has fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. And the disciples think, oh, well, if he's just, if he's just sleeping, that's fine. That's probably what he needs, right? The doctor orders some good rest. Like, no, no, you don't understand. And he says it plainly. Lazarus has fallen. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. So that you may believe. Right? So we got this, we're up to the first 16 verses. And John has established a few things. Right? He has established that Jesus loves Lazarus. Right? He says, the one whom you love is sick. Right? He loves him. This is his friend. Right? But he lets him die. Right? The question is why? Why the death of Lazarus? We're given two reasons. It's so that way the glory of God may be seen. And it's so that way his disciples, the people, may see and believe. Right, so why the death of Lazarus? What's the purpose? So the disciples are to believe, or the disciples will believe when they see the glory of God, when they see the Son of God glorified. So what Jesus is doing, he is going for glory. And it's, I think it's important just before we get to this to pause here and explore this a little bit. Right? When we talk about glory will be seen through the death of Lazarus. Right? Glory and death. I know last week Matt uh, in his sermon talked about glory. We get a little double dip on how we see glory in this passage. And as I thought about it, like glory is often, is often seen or is often displayed to something that is difficult, right? Something through that is challenging, something that is dangerous, right? I was talking to Lenora about her childhood growing up. So she's from the woods of Michigan, and she had three older brothers. And a lot of these times, uh, it's kind of a cue that whenever one of her brothers, usually Stefan, uh, would say, hey, dad, watch this, right? You know that he was probably going to do something dangerous or stupid. Like, 
jump off the roof or try to do a backflip or Lenora said like practice for his wrestling or jujitsu moves usually on him or on her right so when when he would say hey dad watch this right what was he trying to do right why did he want to get that his dad's attention well it's because he was hungry for glory right he wanted to have his dad's attention and dad's approval like dude that is crazy but good work (laughs) right how often does your kids say that hey dad watch this or your daughters how do i look how do i look what is glory matt last week brought up c.s lewis and in his article the weight of glory he points that that glory an aspect of glory is divine approval divine approval of god um, of giving the the accolade well done thou good and faithful servant right when the father looks at you he looks at you and he is pleased he is pleased with who you are and what you have done and sometimes this approval this delight is given before anything is accomplished, right? The baby is just born, and the dad or the mom's like just delighting in that child, right? Hasn't done anything, but there is just that delight. But often, glory comes through difficulty, right? Comes through some kind of difficulty. And it could be, you know, you're just like a little one-year-old kid. You take your first steps, and huzzah, well done. Or it's a kid jumping off the roof, or it's you finally graduating from college. We want the approval for doing the hard thing, the difficult task, the dangerous mission. It's the watch this, longing for the well done. So how do we see glory in this story? How do we see glory with Lazarus? Well, Lazarus is dead. That's the difficulty. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says to his father and to everyone watching, watch this. Watch this. And they're going to see glory. So Jesus is marching towards glory. And and he is entering into a funeral. He is going to a funeral where a brother has died, where a friend has been buried. And we got to note that Jesus doesn't ignore the grief, the doubts, the death. Yes, we do know that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Mary doesn't. Martha doesn't. The friends don't. Right? Lazarus sure didn't know that he was going to be raised. They knew that they had prayed for help, that they petitioned Jesus and that he didn't come, right? Or that he came too late. But Jesus has come and he draws near to his people, right? In John, 1 John 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus is the word of God that became flesh to dwell among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father that is full of what? It's full of grace. It's full of truth. 
When we see the glory of God, we see grace. We see truth. And that's what Jesus gives to Mary and Martha. Right? They're, they're in the, that, that despair, that darkness, that struggle, that anger. Right? They're in that reality of death. And the glory of Christ comes to them. And he comes to them with truth. Right? He gives truth to Martha with her doubts, with her questions. And he gives grace. He gives comfort to Mary in her despair. So uh, if we're following along, we're verse 17 here. So Jesus finally arrives, and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And Martha hears that Jesus has arrived, and he comes, and she comes to meet him. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right? And what's implied is like, so where were you? Right? Where were you? If you had been here, then my brother would not have died. Question. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give. Right? She is torn between these, these questions, this anger, right? these doubts, and hope. And Jesus says to her, verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Right? She's got truth. Right? She's, that's everything that she says is true. But it's a truth that is just directly focused on the death of her brother. And she needs to be able to see the truth that is standing right before her. Right? She, and Jesus gently raises her eyes to him, or to him and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus gives Martha and believers the promise of resurrection and life. He says, those who die, those who die believing in Jesus will be resurrected in their bodies once again right, on the last day. Right, here is this future hope. And here's a present hope. And those who live believing in Jesus shall never really die. Right, what, is this, what does this mean? Well, there is no delay for believers in Jesus from the presence of this life to the presence of the eternal life with Jesus. Right? That means that as, as a Christian, right, as you draw your last breath here on earth, right, your last breath, then your next breath will be in the presence of Christ in heaven. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To me, to live is Christ right here. And when I die, then that means it is more of Christ. Jesus says, do you believe this? And she rightly responds, yes. I don't just believe this. I believe you. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So these are powerful truths 
that, that Jesus holds out to her doubt, to her anger, to her questions. So Martha hears this from the Lord, and then she runs, she returns home, and she talks to Mary. She says that the Lord wants to speak to you. And so Mary runs and comes to Jesus. But she comes in in her despair and grief. And Jesus gives her grace. So verse 28, she falls at the feet of Jesus and cries to her, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. He says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to her, where have you laid him? Then they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Right, when Mary comes to Jesus, she is full of grief. She is full of despair. And she, she says the exact same things that Mar Martha does. Right? They had talked about it. Lord, if you had only been here, he would not have died. But it does, she doesn't just say them. She, she weeps them. Right. Perhaps you too feel like sometimes you don't have enough words, the right words. But all that there is in you is grief. So be like Mary and weep. Right? But weep like Mary does, clinging to the feet of Christ. And notice that Jesus doesn't launch into a theological discussion. Right? He meets Mary right where she's at, in her grief, in her agony, because he is a sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Right, Jesus is tender. He is compassionate. I was at a funeral service for a young couple who, uh, who lost their child. And one of the passages that they read from was Isaiah 40 that described Jesus as, as the shepherd who gather, gathered the lambs in his arms. It says that he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. It says that's what Jesus, the shepherd, does. And the, and the mom said such a precious thing. She says that Jesus does what a parent, what a mother longs to do with her child. To hold them in the arms. To keep them gently close to him. That's what Jesus is. But it says that Jesus, when he sees all of this, that his spirit is troubled. It is greatly troubled. And yes, Jesus is afflicted with sorrow, but there's more than just sorrow in Christ. Right? The word for deeply troubled has, has indignation and even anger in it. 
This is some of the emotions that are in Christ. So who is he, who is he angry at? Right. Well, certainly not Mary. Right. Certainly not angry at those who are weeping. What is Christ angry at? Yes, Christ is angry at death. Right? He is angry because of the sin that has come into the world that brings about this death and this pain and these tears. Right? He is angry at the enemy and the destruction, the devastation that it has caused. Right? And this is the battle that Jesus has come to fight. Right? This is the Christ who is coming into the world and death has taken one of his friends. And he is filled with emotions, yes, of, of sorrow, of weeping, but also of anger, of wrath. And so he marches as the weeping warrior to do battle against death. And you see, it's just like, watch this. You guys ready? Watch this. And he comes to the tomb, and he orders that the stone be rolled away. But Martha protests. She says, Lord, it's been four days since he's been in the tomb, and there'll be an odor, right? It'll stink. You know, he's dead. It's over. Just leave him be. And then Jesus reminds her of the truth. Like, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Remember that the death of Lazarus does not that does not end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And then Jesus lifts his eyes and prays to his Father, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but I say this so that way those who hear me may believe that you have sent me. Now watch this. And amen. And then Jesus spoke with a loud voice. Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came out with his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. This is, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. A dead man who's been in the grave for four days is raised to life again by the command of Jesus. Jesus commanded and the dead obeyed. Whenever Jesus commands, the dead must obey. This is a miracle for Lazarus. The man who was loved of God, who died, has been raised again. Right, this is a miracle for Lazarus, but this is also for all those who believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the resurrection and the life. Right, this, is a, this is a miracle that every Christian must experience. Right, Paul preaches in Ephesians 2, we have this glorious funeral message and this glorious resurrection. Ephesians 2 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, right? It's not just Lazarus who is behind the stone in the grave, right? All, all of us are dead. The world is 
the tomb, and we are dead in our sins. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, right? There's God's love, just like he loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. We are loved. Even when we are dead in our trespasses, we have been made alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What is that? That is glory. That is glory. You have been loved by God. Now, the love of the Father sends his Son into the world in order to battle against sin and death and the devil. And what did Jesus do? When he was going to the cross, he was going to battle. Right? Watch this. And then the Father is pleased with this. It's well done. And he raises him up into glory. And this, is, this, is, uh, this new life that we have in Christ is not something that you can drum up. Right? Like what hope did Lazarus have to get out on his own power? Right? No hope at all. But it is by grace you have been saved through Christ. There is life, there is resurrection, there is glory in Christ. And then this becomes the pattern for our life all the time. Right? We ought to be marked as Christians by the promise of this new life. There's new life in your marriage. How many marriages do you think like that? That is dead. That is rotten. That stinks. That's just going to end in divorce. And yet, the one who calls Lazarus from the dead still speaks and calls new life from that death. Jesus still has power. I've seen it. Right? I believe that Jesus has power, right? If Jesus has power over death, then what is outside of his control? Right? What, is, what is outside of his power? Are you bonded? Uh, what can keep his people in bondage? Are you a slave to alcohol? Are you wrapped up in the bondage of pornography? Are you in the tomb of bitterness? Are you just suffocated with anger? Well, God has the power to be able to call you out to new life. But what happens, Christian, when you are in that trial, when you are in that suffering that comes to your family? And often, you're like Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and all that you see is just the sickness, the pain, the questions, and the death. You're in it right now, and you know that that's not going to be the end, but you're in it right now. What do you do? What do you do? Well, you do believe. You look to Christ and believe that he is the resurrection, the life. You believe that he is the Christ. You believe that you have been loved by God. And then you can go get glory. Then you go fight for glory. When you're in the struggle, when you're in the pain, 
you say, have I been loved by the Father? And if you have, you say, Father, watch this. Watch this. And amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son who has come not only to win glory, but to be able to give glory, to give comfort, to give truth to us. Father, we thank you that in Christ we have life and the hope of new life. Father, we do thank you so much for your abundant kindness that you have given to us. Not only have you given us life, but you have given us abundant life. Father, out of that abundance, we give back to you just a small portion in these tithes and offerings. And we offer them to you in the name of your Son. And amen. So it's kind of hard to imagine that the same Lazarus, who was decomposing for four days, ate breakfast the next morning. And then all of the usual questions suddenly become very profound. So, how did you sleep? Understandably, this man's life changed after his resurrection. And from the little that we know, he didn't waste his new life. He became known as the one whom Jesus raised from the dead. Lazarus became a marked man, so much so that that the Jews plotted to kill not only Jesus, but Lazarus, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Lazarus didn't waste his new life. But what if one morning Martha found, found him back in the tomb, snuggled in the funeral clothes, muttering about, how, uh, how peaceful it all was in here, right? He'd be crazy. Jesus raised him from the dead, so Lazarus shouldn't act like he's still dead. And neither should you. If you've been baptized, then you have been raised from the dead. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. In your baptism, the glory of the Father has called you forth into new life in Christ. And once you have been freed from the bounds of your old sin, Why would you try to go back and tie yourself up with jealousy or porn or anger or scoffing at your parents? Because as as Martha observed, they all stink. All of that sin stinks like death. In your baptism, you have become marked as the one whom Jesus raised from the dead. So that means don't try to go put on the old grave clothes of sin, but rejoice, be thankful, and live in such a way that people who see your new life would go and believe in Jesus. For here, the same one who has called you from death now calls you to come and eat and drink with your baptized brothers and sisters. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us 
by your glory into this family because of your son through the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is love. This is grace. And we ask that as your children, we would know how to eat and drink with a thankful and joyful heart. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there is, there is no one and there is nothing that can stay dead when the God of life calls them to life. Right? When Jesus commands, the dead always obey. So the charge is this. In this next week, when Jesus calls you out on some deadly sin or a stinky attitude or rotten thoughts, then obey. Then obey, then come out and walk in the light. And go with this benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen.